Yeah, yeah. You can sit. You can sit down there in between your mother and my wife and uh, all your other relatives. That's it. You just come in. It's not yeah. my birthday until February, Leo. No, no. It's not about birthdays. Um, the thing is that we've all come no. here today, uh, and, and we're, we're we're just going to talk through a few things with you. You know, because we think yes. you've got a bit of a, maybe maybe a bit of a problem. Problem. Yes. There's certain things that you're particularly into. You know. Yeah, sometimes people make choices in life. Sometimes they're not the best choices, Ian. And, you know, we've we've suddenly come to realise that, you know, you're not just a casual Doctor Who user. Look, look at look at last week's podcast. What was that all about? You well, know, it was War to War Doctor Who. I firmly think that is an award-winning edition of our podcast. In fact, it's inspired me to think perhaps our entire podcast can be rethemed just for the purposes of Doctor Who. You know, it's only a few um, sleeps until the anniversary it, special. I'm very excited. And this is this is this is exactly what we're talking about. And, and for that reason, uh, we, we've we've prepared this this little document here that we'd oh. like to sign. I see now. Understand here. Forthwith, should not mention or make reference to. This says I can't talk about Doctor Who on the podcast. Yes, that that's that's what it is. It's an affidavit right. that says that we we don't want to talk yes. about Doctor Who anymore on the podcast. Do you mean ever I again. can't talk about the new Paul McGann prequel minisode that just came out this week that was freaking awesome in which he regenerated into John Hurt? I can't talk about that at all. How awesome and epic it was. I haven't seen that. Have you seen uh, that, Justin? No. Uh, Paul McGann? <laughs> uh, maybe we should go and uh, just... We'll, we'll just go and watch that and, and see... Nearly seven minutes later. All right, Ian, we've been to watch it. This is what we're going to do with the affidavit. Okay. <laughs> there we go. It's gone. Right. We're just going to have to talk about that, but maybe not in the main show, eh? Uh, but for now, let's roll the title music. Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. 1985 is just too big. Too many films. Too, too, too many films. I mean, goodness, ooh, is all I can say. Sirs, what I suggest is we take an 80s solution to this. Of course, what solution would be better than the Rocky Four solution of doing a montage sequence? Gentlemen, grab your three favourite films and meet me in the time machine. No, the other one, the DeLorean. It's time to go forward to the past and discuss the films of 1985. And could we ask for a better opening than that? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, I, I am Leo Stelford, one of the 80s kids. I Joining am... me tonight are my excellent introducer friend, Ian. Oh, I preempted you for that almost for a second. Yes, I am Ian. I am another one of the 80s kids, but I am not alone. No, in fact, uh, you were joined by me, Justin, the third 80s kid. Don't, don't say and third like it's tacked on. 
You're not like, it's you not know, the on. third sequel, which one that's trying to squeeze <laughs> some more money out of the franchise. Ever oh, diminishing if, you're really, if you're really lucky, Justin, or unlucky, depending on your point of view, I might actually have the new ident, Ian suggested, ready for this week's episode. You too may have right. your face plastered all over the uh, <laughs> ident for the podcast this week for that's the first lovely. time ever. Um, so, yes, um, there is. we are going to therefore centre our discussion around nine films. We've each picked three. They're not like our favourite films ever. They are like talking point films from 1985. However, we should commence possibly with the one thing we can all agree on, and that is that 1985 was the year of Back to the Future. Yes, it's the heartwarming family film where a mad professor strikes a deal with Libyan terrorists to make a bomb and a teenager travels back in time to get French kissed by his mother and then try and arrange his parents to get off at a dance later on before beating <laughs> someone up and creating rock and roll and then going back to the present. Oh, and a special guest star at this time. Enter the fray, Sue, the wife. Hello. Hey, we're a mad scientist screens. How did they find me? How did they find me? Well, he's got Dot Brown Enterprises written all over the van in big lettering. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, yes. Um, so, so I mean, the, 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 there is, of course, a, an oft-rehearsed story, which uh, some people at home may not have heard, Back, Back to the Future, that the script went round all of the... Um, at the movie studios in Hollywood for quite a while getting turned down because it was a teen, it was kind of a teen comedy, but the kind of teen comedy that they were making at this time was like Porky's and Revenge of the Nerds and there wasn't enough sex in the script. It was like, what's this science fiction stuff? What's going on? Um, and then they went back to Disney and said, how about you guys? You like the family entertainment? They said, no, incest. <laughs> too little sex for most people, too much for Disney. <laughs> um, so yes, that, that's that's the the history. But I mean, and of course, it's gone on since then. Uh, not only to be the first part of a, I mean, they they honestly, you know, if you listen to the commentary track on the the DVD, uh, Zemeckis and and Co were were not confident that it would get a sequel. They in fact they thought. This is it. It's a one-off. This is, you know, people have it. They'll like it. We like this script. We're not sure anyone else will. And then, lordy, lordy, it was hugely popular and everyone loved it. And not only that, but it's, it's, you know, famously used as an example of great script writing and that every, every beat contributes and builds the story. There isn't a single, you know, wasted line of dialogue in the whole film or, or action or plot point. Everything means something think, somewhere think, else. The good thing about being a kid is you you don't realise that st- structure is there at the time. You just kind of absorb these things. So I just came out of the cinema. I, I didn't know I'd seen a, you know, a, a, an important genre-defining 80s movie at the time. I just came out going, oh, that, that, that was a very good movie. Uh, yes, I'm, there was, and there's surprisingly very little merchandise around at the time, I think, uh, for it as well. So it was just kind of no, lingered in your a, mind. No, you're you're misremembering the amount of merchandise. That well, uh, merchandise did come out later. I know that, but there wasn't in the immediate aftermath. Well, anyway, um, it, it just kind of no, lingered. It, it, it just, well, I can see my point. Maybe there was, but um, it, it lingered in my, it lingered in my mind afterwards. And I think it's the first film I I, I ever wanted like to see again on video before yeah. it came out on television. I, I just had to go back and watch it again because I was obsessed about the fact that his 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 older brother and sister are slowly fading away from a photograph. That was quite haunting actually, and quite disturbing yeah. at the same time. Yes, all I was going to say was, 
one of the things that I've now you've brought back to my mind about Back to the Future is that it was a movie that wasn't Star Wars that got a Panini sticker album, which I had. I never uh, yes. watched it, but I had it. Uh, um, so did I. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, and Ghostbusters didn't, which is odd, because if I was going to tangle about which one was the bigger at the time, I'd say Ghostbusters probably edge out, edges out Back to the Future. But Back to the Future certainly had a lot more stuff surrounding it. I think it was because of their, the, the, the title font on the poster was very easy to put on pencils and rubbers. And oh, yeah, it was, like a, it was like a proper logo, wasn't it? Yeah. Very, very distinct. Um, it's, I mean, interesting. I mean, obviously, we'll talk about the later ones as it comes on. But it's one of those rare films, actually, that kind of works. It's actually enhanced by the other films because they kind of draw so much inspiration from it. And it, so it actually mm. becomes, as you watch the other two, um, because of there are, you know, certain iconic scenes that are repeated through time in different incarnations, it reinforces the kind of the structure of the story so that when you go back and watch the first one again, it's kind of more powerful. I yeah, suppose, I I, but my, my criticism, my, well, one of the few criticisms I have of the trilogy is that, and the first one, Biff is just kind of this small town bully. But by these successive films, he's become a full-blown villain, villain who wants to steal Marty's mum mur- and, and murders people left, right and centre. He's utterly remorseless and evil. He's just, he's just a bully in the first film. You punch him in the face and he backs right off because he is, in, in heart, like all bullies, a bit of a coward. You need a villain, though, right? Yeah, yeah. you do. But you know, but I, I think that um, I think that uh, one of the things that surprises me is that when people do discuss uh, things like uh, you know great movie trilogies or, or what have you, I think Back to the Future does get a bit of a raw deal in that because I don't really see a lot of people coming to bat for it. Um, it it's well, it, it's, it's because it's it's somehow quieter about itself. Somehow I don't know. It, it doesn't. But it's such a small film about such a small set of friends. Going through different iterations of the same setup in different times, I suppose. Yeah, and I think the other thing is that there's this erroneous idea that the, that part two is not a good film, whereas actually, really? yeah, is that, is that thought of. I think it's definitely the strongest of them. Well, that's the thing. You it's see, very it, plot it, dense. Yes, from if you watch it in isolation, I think you would be. What the hell is this? Robert Zemeckis himself is like, on the one hand, this is like one of the strangest films I've ever made, and on the other hand, it's one of my favourite films that I've ever made because it's so bizarre and it just doesn't. It's well, the glue that holds the whole thing together and has a lot on its back for that reason. It's it's further proof they didn't consider a sequel when they wrote the first film because the, the setup they gave themselves at the beginning of the second film is it's kind of like oh god we've got the girlfriend with marty uh okay uh they they knock her out <laughs> with a strange rape device that doc brown seems to have on his person for some reason and dump her on a park bench <laughs> uh that, well the, the, the good thing about the good thing for two about movies by the way are, yes the thing about um uh the convenience of such devices is that obviously Doc Brown has a time machine. And so, you know, oh yeah, you know, after the first mess, it's like, well, if I just arrive five minutes earlier, so you could actually have like a spin-off where it's like the first time round when Doc Brown left them for 10 minutes before he turned up to say, it's your kids. 
and then the girlfriend was awake and it all gets horrendously messed up. And you go, no, <laughs> got to do it again. But I say, so the idea of revisiting a film in another film, you know, is 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 genius. You know, it's 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 and of course you you and because it works, obviously, because of the affection you'll have for the original. To kind of then you're worried about are they going to screw has, this? You know, what's going to happen here? But has video diminished that at all? Because we can just go back and watch the first for many time. We're like, we don't need well, to go gate crash no. and get in the second film. No, actually, I think I mean this is the uh, the the Back to the Future Part Two effect is that. At the time when it came out, I did go and see it at the cinema, Back to the Future 2. I came out and somebody said, oh, how was that there? And I said, well, it's got a, very, a lot of middle in it. Uh, it's not really, you know, it's just, it's it's horrendously dependent on the others. And I think in an age when, you know, video and stuff was a special thing, and it, it, that kind of is a burden to a film, to be dependent upon other films to make it complete. But now that you can have your DVD trilogy sat on yeah. your uh, shelf, it's awesome. It's like, wow, it's one big, long feature film movie that isn't going to send me to sleep like Lord of the Rings did. You know, uh, that's that's so I, I yeah, I think that actually be, having that back reference has enhanced and yeah. elevated Back to the Future as a yeah. trilogy rather than anything else. And they agree. So yes, so there we go. That's Back to the Future. Maybe we'll talk about this. Well, we, we inevitably will come back around to the other episodes. But for now, we have we have our picks, and maybe we should start today with Ian. What is the first talking point movie for you from the many many movies of 1985? Well, I would like to kind of continue in our kind of Spielbergian vein to do another film that Steven Spielberg did not direct, but it is somehow associated with, which would be uh, The Goonies where we all go off and find One-Eyed Willie in, in an immensely rude film. I recently watched it, and it is, there's just dick jokes and things everywhere. These, these, these kids are allowed to be properly disgusting. I mean, the statue gets knocked over, and the genitals fall off, and then they're trying to reattach the genitals to the statue. You couldn't do this these days. Uh, well, the, I remember famously that, that the BBFC, I don't know whether the BBFC issued different uh, uh, sort of certifications, or whether they made them recut it. It, it, or it is typically recut sin- for television because uh, television's cut starts if one of the the bad guys, uh, the smart brother, breaking out of prison, just runs out the prison. In the movie, you, they, he gets out of prison. The, the warden opens the cell because he sees he's hung himself, and he goes in. He hasn't. Wow. Really, he's, he's propped himself up on his bunk bed, so he's not really hanging himself. But that is the opening shot of, of a prisoner has hung himself in cell. But the cin- in the cinema. Um, they they obviously didn't... I, well, I don't know whether they recut it. Uh, there were certain films. I remember that there was another one um, starring Gregory Hines called White Nights, where the cinema seemed uncertain as to whether the certificate was PG or 15. And that doesn't happen anymore. Now you can go on the internet and check. But, you know, they would let kids in because they weren't sure that they weren't supposed to and I think the Goonies did fall into that in cinema and then obviously yes got recut for for television as a television version and so on and so forth and there are different cuts of the Goonies uh, I mean so there's um yeah I think that, that was that the wife I mean it's not a surprise that Steven Spielberg it's not a surprise that Steven Spielberg is is associated with no. this movie because it's very Spielbergian, despite yeah. being directed by Richard Donner. Yeah. 
Uh, uh, he is. Uh, and little references to Indiana Jones. Yes, it is because I, I had a friend. I had a friend who was obsessed with Indiana Jones, and this is like Indiana Jones with kids, and, and different ages yeah. of kids. So you you can kind of like you're going to tag along with the more older teenager like uh, kids who have a romantic thing going on, or the young ones who into the adventure and solving the traps. And he, and he got that wasn't one of them had gadgets like the and yeah. Yes. Who, who is in Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom? It's the yes, same actor. Yes, of course, wasn't he? Short, he was short round. Yeah, short pounds. Yeah, so... so uh, uh, yeah, a lot of, lot of stuff in there. I mean, one of the things that I have to confess is that, although I saw it at the time and I loved it, then I think it went through a bit of a wilderness patch because, I don't. I mean, I don't know whether it didn't get released on VHS or whether I didn't... I, it, but it was lost for a long time. And then they did this DVD release about, what, five, six years ago that was absolutely huge. And I obviously raced down to the shop to buy a copy. And in the intervening years, suddenly the uh, fantastic uh, children's adventure that I had loved when I had seen it when I was a child was just a lot of children shouting and swearing at one another. It was I have to say, I, I had a bit of the same experience. My, I remember more the playing the video game. <laughs> And getting a lot out of that um, than the actual film. And when I did indeed do exactly what you just said, rushed out, I was a bit like, oh, okay, this isn't quite as. But then, you know, I guess I was much younger then and it was all very exciting and I was there, you know, wish fulfillment, running around doing these kind of traps. So I think the, the Goonies had the advantage, as, as some movies did, but most of the movies that had this advantage went on to not be terribly uh, well remembered. Is that it was a surprise. You went and went, Oh, I don't know what I'm watching. And then you watched it and went, Oh, wow, this is really good. So, you know, as opposed to things like, as we just talked about Back to the Future, yeah. you knew Back to the Future was supposed to be good because the, the media was pushing, you know, go and see Back to the Future. But nobody really said, go, you know, they said, Oh, there's the Goonies. Go and see that. It'll be fun. Yeah. So there we go. And that is the Goonies. That is the Justin, Goonies. Justin, do you, do, do you have... <laughs> to, change, to change kind of the mood completely, I'm going to talk about Brazil. Aha. Uh-huh. Gear shift. Um, it's a something that isn't quite so wholesome and family entertainment. Um, Brazil is probably one of my, you know, it's, it's up there, one of my favourite films, uh, as actually is, in, is, uh, is uh, Back to the Future. But um, um, I... Uh, so Brazil is... What I love about it is it's it's got all those kind of trappings of kind of 1984 George Orwellian kind of feel to it with this with this fantastic kind of black humour. Um, it's dark, you know. I love the fact that the ending, which I'm not giving anyway, I'm not going to give anything away. But if you haven't seen it, um, it just looks delicious. I mean, it's Terry Gilliam at his kind of finest. It just looks amazing. Um, and it's, but it's the, the, the kind of black humor and stuff is very British, you know, it's, I don't, I, I, I don't know how American authors uh, kind of find it, but, but it is definitely, um, uh, I think they would probably find it uncomfortable because it's, it's kind of a satire of that kind of American kind, kind of film, uh, in places. And it, you know, it absolutely goes, no, this is bleak and we're going to show it, you know. Uh, I just, I think, it's, I think it's a, a, a genius creation. I, I absolutely love it. I, I, was, I keep forgetting that Robert De Niro is in it. It always comes as uh, a surprise he, to me. He, he's, he's disguised <laughs> by the use of a cunning moustache uh, and and a, and a balaclava and then paper. So you know, he, you really don't see very much of him at all. 
Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that um, I... And this is how I recall Brazil at the time, and obviously 1985, I was 10, um, is that there was this thing called Brazil, and then later on in the video shop, you saw the case and you were like, what the hell is that? Because, of course, they had that blue uh, cover with the angel on it and then Brazilian neon with the red and, you know, this odd thing. So you're like, what the hell is that? And what does Brazil mean? Anyway, why Brazil? And, in fact, the, the kind of the marketing of Brazil which is famous for backfiring spectacularly was all because originally Terry Gilliam was wanting to call it, you know, I think something like 1984, the musical or something. I don't know, not that, but it it was some kind of heavy handed, this is 1984, but we're kind of going sideways on it. And I think they kind of decided against it. Um, And, and, you know, to this day, I mean, you know, why is it called Brazil? Um, Why? Well, all I can think of is because that music is playing, it's kind of like it's all about the main character's kind of flights of fantasy. And it's such a depressing world that he lives in that, you know, this music that is kind of in the soundtrack and is his escape. That's all I'm thinking. You know, this kind yeah. of wonderful place. And that's that's it, really. It's it's a, it's all about trying to escape from the terrible monotony and awfulness of life. I think to a certain degree, I mean, when... Um... Quentin Tarantino told a story about when he was trying to get uh, the studio to sign off on Reservoir Dogs. That they said, "What's this title, Reservoir Dogs?" He said, "Well," and he said, "Now I can tell you that it's just a mood title. Reservoir Dogs doesn't mean anything. These guys, whatever a Reservoir Dog is, that's what the guys in the film. That's what they are, and that's what I just made up." But obviously, you can't tell that to someone who's going to distribute your movie because they're like, "Well, that doesn't mean anything." So you know, you can't call it that call it something else like the heist gone wrong you know we want to explain to people so i made this whole thing up about well reservoir dog is a reference to uh 1930s french noir cinema where it was like uh, they called rats reservoir dogs you know that was a thing and therefore gangsters became reservoir dogs it just completely made it up it wasn't true right. at all and so they let him fly with it and it is just a mood title whereas i think terry gilliam went it's called brazil why well because that's kind of the, where we're going with it it's a mood title it's just some syllables put together and it's kind of enigmatic and it's weird and it's strange and it's brazil and instead of making up a story that's what he said and it totally didn't work you know people were just like okay i don't know what that is then i'm not gonna uh, and over time you know it, i think brazil is one of the great cinematic regrets of of culture is that they all went oh yeah now we look back on it that was pretty good we should possibly not have completely ignored it and made it bomb at the time you know, that's that's one of the, it's had a bit of a, a history. And then, of course, there's all the stuff about recutting that the studio insisted with happy endings and all this oh. this rubbish. And yeah. you know, it's uh, it's uh, unfortunately this is just part of the course for Mr. Gilliam. <laughs> Terry Gilliam is is possibly the. On the one hand, you would could argue he is one of the least lucky film directors that's ever been. But then you look at the kind of thing that he wants to direct and the projects that interest him. Oh, yeah. He doesn't make his life easy. No, he doesn't. No, he chooses things way beyond what is you know what is what the the producers are able to provide money wise for things. But you know, I think it actually adds to the charm of him. I think you kind of feel you feel a lot of empathy towards Terry Gilliam and his next crazy project that he's trying to do. So I think uh, you know. He's done. He's at the end of the day. He's still making films that he's wanted to do. So, 
you yeah. know, had done so for some for many years. So you know, he's he's actually survived the system. Yes, Ian, thoughts on Brazil? Uh, it's very. It's not a film I've seen very often, and uh, yeah, I, I think the first time it, I wasn't quite ready for it. Second time I knew what I was getting into, so I just kind of went with it. Um, yeah, and, and the ending is is very bleak, but uh, I've since come with with up with like my own quantum reality explanation about why both versions of reality are equally valid. So no need to have go too upset about it. Uh, yeah, it's 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 not it's not something I'm ever desperate to go back and see again, but people seem to appreciate it, and that's no bad thing. I think Ian, what may help you in this in this quandary about the ending. Because I have caught, I saw like a sort of five minute run of the end of Brazil as recut, uh, as what is dubbed throughout history as the Love Conquers All ending. Right. If you watch that and then you let the credits roll, you think they're really going to end the movie like that. That's all of the preceding, you know, 80 minutes or so has led up to that. And then you watch the darker ending, you go, yeah, that's the ending. That, the other one, that's not the ending. That's the ending. And you sort of feel that, although, yeah, the characters themselves, you know, end up in a dire place, the minute that you rejig it to make it happy at the end, you well, suddenly go, that's wrong. There's no evidence that that can exist in the rest of the film. The rest of the film is just full of... Just it sucks, you know. There's just everything is horrible, and well, even even death. the main character, Jonathan Price, is not particularly sympathetic. He's quite selfish throughout. Uh, he's having nice dreams, but so what? He's still a bit of a he's still a little bit of a dick. He's not the biggest dick in the world, but any such imagination. But you know, he's still a little. I mean, everything he does, he does for his own motives. Yes. Uh, yeah, I've just got a soft spot for dreamers. You know, he is just a dreamer, and he wants, you know, to escape it. Well, yes, of and of course, course, and of course, that's, that that shot of him strapped to his chair, uh, whilst the man in the in the baby face mask comes to torture him, yeah. is an album cover level of of astonishing impact. That one shot, yeah. boom, it's like so iconic. Where was that and film? Think... Was that another power station or something? Where was that location? Yeah, it was. Yeah, inside yeah. of power station. Uh, and I just think that, the, you know, there's not, I mean, one of the things about it that is remarkable is that these days we can't, we don't seem to be able to produce downbeat movies that people kind of respond to anymore. You kind of is gangsters, but otherwise no. Yeah, I mean, we don't, we don't produce them and, you know, certainly not downbeat fantasy movies. I mean, we didn't before, we haven't since, and that's why I think a lot of people, it charms a lot of people, because it's, it's all there is. Um, so yeah, I mean, Brazil, definitely a, a good, a good pick. Let's change the mood completely once more. You know, ricocheting through 1985. There was a lot on the buffet table here, because my first <laughs> pick is Commando, starring yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger. Schwarzenegger in his prime, possibly, arguably, the most Schwarzenegger, Schwarzenegger movie that exists. <laughs> Completely unpolluted by, you know, star directors, high concept science fiction, or any of this stuff. It is unarguably Schwarzenegger's movie. 
commando. Um, it is, because Schwarzenegger's charisma utterly dominates it, because he has that aura. At the same time, it's quite an odd film. It like it could only be made at that particular moment in his career. Uh, Although, strangely, you say it's quite an odd film. Uh, yeah, I thought for a minute you were going to say it could only be made in the mid-1980s, and I think possibly a lot of people would think that. But I watched it recently, and what I realised was that a lot of stuff that I think... Uh, movies like Lethal Weapon and Beverly Hills Cop get credit for in action movies where you have like a wisecracking element to it or you introduce a strand of wacky humour or, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And and in fact, later on, in, uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger moved on to make Twins, Kindergarten Cop and stuff like that. Commando is actually terribly tongue-in-cheek. Like, actually, the existence of Commando is like a little sly wink at the audience. And I think people who who maybe don't have as much time for it or don't like it believe that it's this very serious... It was Stallone that made things like Rambo, which is terribly, you know, thinking... You know, it, it has this kind of like, oh, action is terrible and, you know, war is hell and all of this kind of stuff. Whereas Commando is actually like a little bit of a joke. It's like, yeah, okay, whatever. It's always like got its tongue firmly in its cheek, which well, I don't think many people expect or remember. I think the basic setup of it is, I cannot believe that is Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter. That is, I can't quite, even though they have a family scene where Arnie's making really bad boy George jokes for some reason at the beginning. It just, I, I cannot believe. No, it, it doesn't seem right somehow. Well, it's very hard to believe that, that it's um, Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter because it's Alyssa Milano. So that kind of... <laughs> well, <laughs> even at the time I saw it, which must have been mid-80s, oh, yeah. it was like, nah. No, <laughs> no, it, it, that is totally, yes. I Yeah, I totally understand that. It is Well, that's part of the joke in a way. But at the same time, I think it, maybe it was sort of a slight... Because, you know, we've remarked before, Arnie is not a dumb man. And I think, to a certain extent, Commando is like him having a little poke at the kind of things producers wanted in a 1985 action movie. Like, if he has a little girl who gets kidnapped, Alyssa Milano is kind of like the exemplar of a little girl, but it's completely unbelievable as Arnold Schwarzenegger's daughter. And that's that's kind of the thing. I mean, you know, and there are a lot of you know choices which can only really be accounted for by this idea that it is a little bit of a sly dig, like his, his nemesis, the uh, that strange, you know, muscly Australian guy. Bennett. I mean, Bennett, yeah. There's something very odd about that. <laughs> and the fact that he's... I mean, in a way, you can almost picture Arnold Schwarzenegger going, well, I've got a funny accent. And to Americans, he's got a funny accent. So it's like... But it's completely different to mine. So, <laughs> what's going off there? It's, there are these weird, surreal touches to Commando that I don't think. That, which is why I wanted to talk about it because I think it's it's one of those things where it's like people go, "Oh yeah, Arnold Schwarzenegger, he was a great action star, The Terminator, and Terminator Two, and Total Recall, and all of this stuff," and then people oh. don't. Really, remember I because I, I, I always felt Commando was kind of like you know it, it's one of the obligatory films in your Schwarzenegger um, marathon movie fest surely 
Really? I don't know. I think it kind of gets lumped in because the following year, I mean, as we'll get round to maybe, depending on the, the, the sort of what we need to discuss in 1986. In 1986, he made Raw Deal, which is kind of like the, the exact what people think Commando is. I mean, it's, it's flat, dry, joyless action with... It's just nonsense and not even entertaining nonsense. And I think because they were like year on year, people can't maybe even confuse the two. Because... Um, I, I mean, I, I'm not, the reason I haven't kind of said much is I'm not, I have to say I'm not a big kind of fan of this kind of film. Although, you know, it might be worth me looking at now that you, the way you talk about it. Well, perhaps I, I should read, you know, I might have just gone, oh, this is just yeah. Arnie Gums which, uh, yawn. But well, exactly, which is exactly the kind of thing, right. Justin, you enjoy the transporter, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Commando is like the spiritual ancestor of something it's, like it's, that. It's never boring, and it, and, and it doesn't take itself too seriously. And it's fun. It's just fun to watch. You know, it, it's... And I think... Well, the other thing about it is that at the time when I first watched it, because I, you know, I, I want, you know, in my head I couldn't accept that it wouldn't just be meathead action. I thought, what's this woman, Ray Dawn Chong doing as the female lead to me she seemed completely out of place watching it again of course Ray Don Chong very funny a very funny oh. woman she does a lot of jokes and what you realise is that Schwarzenegger got her onto the movie to be like a peanut gallery to the fights because he's having this massive meathead brawl with this guy yeah. and she's sitting in the corner going you guys take too many steroids what's going on <laughs> and it's like she's filling in this like track of like almost like Mystery Science Theatre 3000 dialogue that goes over the action scenes. I can't believe this. You need to calm down and learn to talk to each other. <laughs> it's, yeah, so well, there's a lot more... It, uh, I don't know the chronology of, of, of his films. I mean, would you say it's like the first one where you established that kind of one-liner, or had he done that before in previous films? Well, obviously he did I'll Be Back in The Terminator, but... Yeah, yeah but, I mean, the, the kind of... But not, not the uh, catchphrase as much as the, you know, the, the pun. Yeah, it's... Is, it's is, is the kind of start of that? The screw you, actual screwing people in with a drill and that kind I of stuff? Think, yeah, I think he was... Well, it's the... You know, it's got some of the famous ones... Like, uh, you know, you said you'd let me go, drops him off a cliff. Yeah. I lied, you know, and stuff like that. It, yeah, it's got all of those. That's and quite important for that reason, I think, because that was not only with Arnie, but that set up a particular, you know, that cliche is, is still going. Well, yeah, well, I mean, the point is that if Commando hadn't existed, I don't think some of Arnie's better lines from Predator would have existed. Because no. Shane Black wouldn't have bothered writing them for it. So that's, you know, that's kind of the, the thing. It's like Arnie wanted to establish that as something he did. And so yeah. this is where his opportunity was. So, yeah, a, a, a more interesting movie than it appears on the surface. I think what you have to do, and it is available, Justin, on Netflix. So you can yeah. watch no, it. Without I will, a problem. We'll definitely look at it. You have to look at the cover as Arnold sort of doing a little parody of himself as opposed to just it just being ridiculous because yes. he thinks it's serious. He doesn't think it's serious. He is joking. He is winking at you with all of that black face paint and yeah. shiny muscles and guns everywhere. It, yeah, that's that's what it is. He is winking at the audience in that. So, yes. So, uh, Ian, uh, your well, second pick. I'm going to go against the flow here because you two are like, 
in a complete contrast, I am meanwhile going to link my films thematically to the one that came before. So I'm going oh. to discuss A View to a Kill, the James Bond action offering of 1985, where the uh, geriatric, uh, you know, Roger Moore, uh, shows us this strange universe which keeps cutting between two worlds. One where he's an elderly, you know, uh, a spy for the British government. And then the action scenes where a much younger man, who's stunt double, does all the fighting. <laughs> Grace yeah, Jones that... uh, and, uh, and my goodness, uh, Christopher Walken. Surely if there was a man made to be a Bond villain, it was him. And I keep forgetting, oh yeah, he was a Bond villain in, in that one where he wanted to destroy Silicon Valley in his evil schemes. And Patrick McNee was wasted in that movie, but he's, he's yeah. there. Um, yeah, it's, it's the last gasp of Roger Moore, who has, you know, it's, it's painfully obvious he's outstayed his welcome by now. But it's always such a risk to change your lead Bond actor. So, you know, it, it always feels like, oh, he's, he's come around the last minute and says, I'll do it. Okay, let's go with it then. Um, but yeah, I think this was, this was it. This is where we really had to go. There wasn't, you just couldn't believe he was pulling all these very young, attractive women, no matter how many Zeppelins it's he blew creepy. up. It's creepy. I always find watching that one, I find yes. it quite difficult, really. Unsettling. The last shot we ever have of Roger Moore as James Bond is like being in a shower with another woman whilst Q is sending in a, a little re remote controlled robot and, and spying on them. It's like, <laughs> so it's just for the sheer kind of horror of it all and, you know, <laughs> and for the fact that it's, it's computers 80s everyone computers computers do, 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 yeah. do, 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 do. all those vector well, graphics yeah. you know it has it has to be said that i mean what you've done there very uh cleverly is is set up the thing i mean if you look at action the state of action movies in 1985 you actually had three three pillars to the, the sort of kind of thing that was going on. One is Commando, which is joined on stage by Rambo First Blood Part 2, Rocky Four is out, uh, Red Sonja. There's a lot of muscle stuff going on in that part of action. Then, interestingly, you've got the kind of uh, proto-wacky uh, adventure type um sort of Indiana Jones ripoff in uh, I think it's Jewel of the Nile is yeah, that the word? yeah yeah um and then and then you've got James Bond um and and yeah James Bond not only is Rod I mean this is the interesting thing on the one hand Roger Moore is no good as James Bond at this time because he's too old to be James Bond on the other side of that coin James Bond the franchise is showing its age mm. so James Roger Moore is in a way an exemplar of what has happened to the James Bond franchise at this stage? It's not just Roger Moore who's showing, you know, who's, who's outstayed his welcome. At this point, James Bond is having, you know, um, well, his midlife crisis is coming to an end and he's realising he's just old. Yeah. Mm. Um, so, yes, I mean, it, it's... Uh, and, and I remember the, the plot, you know, flooding Silicon Valley or whatever, got a lot of flack because it wasn't... Oh, computers. He wants to do something about computers, the villain. What's that all about? Ooh, who cares about that? Yeah. Whereas, you know, I, in, on, in retrospect, quite cunning, you know, because yes. as, as you look at the behemoth that is Microsoft um, these days, that, you know, if you could corner the market in the 80s, wipe out the competition, be the sole producer of, of domestic computers for everyone must own a computer. Yes. 
dun, dun, dun. It's kind of a black irony, isn't it, that one of the cleverest Bond villain ideas, and, you know, Christopher Walken, what a great actor to be a Bond villain, is in one of the, you know, without a doubt, one of the worst Bond movies that exists. With Grace Jones as his henchman. Henchwoman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's you know. I think everyone realised. Oh, you kind of they were kind of rolling this out, and you were just, oh dear, this is the yes. end. This is the end. And um, and uh, you know, we had to, we had to wait for for it to be reinvigorated. So um, and, and, uh, yeah, you know, I, I didn't like it. I have to say, I didn't really enjoy it at the time, and and, and since seeing it, don't enjoy it either. It's it's not a great film. There is an argument to say, you know, I'm not sure where you stand on this, but that it took really until uh, the 50th Skyfall to really attain the, the sort of its former vigour as a franchise. And it's quite remarkable that they made so many Bond movies in between. Uh, I, you say that. I mean, I think, I, I think to recall... Sure, um, really. Goldeneye was very popular when it came out in in nineteen ninety. It was very popular, and it was had a, had the kind of computer game link, and it was a kind of a big thing. And I think, um, uh, and there was a there was a reasonable gap between that and and uh, Timothy Dalton, wasn't there? Um, so yes, it had rested. It did come. Sort. It did come back. It was kind of. It was looking fresher, you know. Um, it. Uh, so I remember being. I think it did gain a bit of momentum, you know. Uh, yeah, it, I mean. The, I think this is people's concern following, you know, I think the way that I experience it is uh, that that they kind of, yeah, Dalton made a couple, one of which was eminently forgettable, the other of which I really liked, but nobody else did. Uh, which I, we say, I really like Timothy Dalton's Bond. I think we'll get to him like, in due time, but yeah. We'll... Yeah, yeah, we will. But anyway, no, but then, then you get Goldeneye. But then, yeah, Goldeneye was reasonably successful. Um, but then Pierce Brosnan, not for his fault, really, because he's just the actor again. Well, I, I think he like held it together, to be honest with you. We all, we yeah. all kind of like, um, well, he, he was considered the best Bond since Connery. It was. Um, True Lies came out around about this time and kind of trumped it because it had yeah. a lot more. It was just, it just felt like bigger film. It yeah. had kind of crazier stuff in it. Yeah. And, and it's someone with a bit more charisma, perhaps, you know. Yeah. So they and failed. So, yeah. Basically, I just want to say they kind of, yeah, they kind of failed to capitalize <laughs> on Goldeneye, went through a string of disappointments. Casino Royale was like a reboot. So although that was quite big, it was kind of like, well, what are we going to do now? Then there was Quantum of Solace. Uh, oh dear. Well, that's your writer's strike for you. Yeah, and it's just like what I think the Bond franchise is really wanting and hoping for is a string, you know, two or three in a row that are identifiably, yes, this is solid stuff. And they haven't had that since the 70s. So, wow. Just, just wow that we keep, we keep going forward. We keep trying to do it. So there we go. That's, that's, yes, a very interesting pick. Justin. Uh, so changing tack again. Here we go to a very, a very young tack changes. A, a, a very young Tom Cruise. This is probably one one of the probably the few Tom Cruise films I know because he's not really very Tom Cruise in it. So and that is uh, Legend. Yeah, which kind of with with Legend comes in the vast amount of of 
you know, sort of fantasy and and science well, fiction, all sorts of movies that we had around this time. We had Lady Hawk as well, was kind of this year. Um, and uh, yeah, it was kind of play. And it's you know, it's, you, you got explorers coming in. You got you got uh, Santa Claus the movie, well, Teen Wolf. Back to the Future, we've already discussed. Well, it's the this. kind of Spielberg influence, isn't it, really? I mean, he made a big impact. Um, and everyone was, if he wasn't, of course, he was producing as well, like with the Goonies and things, and had his hand in his stuff anyway, but everyone was trying to capture the spirit of that. You know, yeah. family entertainment was kind of big. Um, I mean, Legend, though, is kind of quite strange. You know, it's not quite so family friendly as that. It's actually well, it, got it's, it's really kind of dark, very fantasy. dark kind of. Yeah, it's. I mean, Tim Curry is just extraordinary. That's the main I really. No, unrecognisable, and and probably the most, probably one of the most. I mean, I, in terms of kind of film kind of villains and stuff, one of the most iconic and not you know easily recognisable, and even probably that well known compared to you know bigger names uh, and bigger characters. But that you know kind of stuck with me. The look of him in that it was generally quite terrifying. And yeah, um, I, I've, I've got a lot of affection for Legend. Uh, it's kind of having seen it again, you know, it's kind of a, a little strange. You know, it's kind of got some odd kind of beats and a kind of a weird kind of uh, feel to it. But um, it's got, you know, it's got all the classics that I kind of like, that, that kind of fantasy thing. But what, what, yeah, what, yeah, what occurs to me suddenly seeing it together like that is that you know, Legend and Brazil coming out in the same year. It's like, Brazil is like, I mean, Terry Gilliam was punching up. He was trying to beef, you know, he'd done Time Bandits. Everybody liked Time Bandits. It was seen as a little cult classic type thing already. And Brazil was him trying to make a debut in a big adult sort of, this is a big lush fantasy thing and, yeah. and didn't quite work, but he was the little guy. Whereas Ridley Scott, you know, he made Alien and stuff, man. Yeah. And then he comes out with Legend, and everyone's like, what the hell is that? Yeah. It is an odd film. And also, the cast is, is quite small. It's a very small world it inhabits. But it's, it's Tom Cruise and his cute friends, and it's the big demon guy. And the big demon guy has, like, two goblins he orders around, and there's a unicorn. And that's pretty much it for the entire Isn't movie. There like a, a, I remember a cage full of dwarves at one stage. There's a, there's a swamp with witches, you know, there's, I mean, there are, you know, there's, it's got, it's got, it's got a little set I never, pieces. I never want to drink that much again. I, my recollections <laughs> are very hazy. Cage of dwarves, swamp of witches. Yes, but it, it, it wasn't exactly commanding a vast army of darkness. It wasn't exactly Lords of Rings, was it? It was more about the thematics of, well, that, that, that I am evil because good exists in the world, you know, so it's like you can't have one without the other. I suppose was what was its simple yes, I mean, what, with the devil's simplistic message. I, I can't help but think having I I totally agree with you, Ian, and that makes sort of legend now suddenly in my mind it forges a connection for me between legend and of course the very thing that brought Justin forth into the podcast, Hawk the Slayer. For that oh, too yes. was an epic lust fantasy, which had very few people wandering around in a forest. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It's kind of you know the ancestor of that, which is a little bit more money thrown in. But at I least Jack Vallance had a mob he could order order to raid towns every now and again. <laughs> but that's the thing; it's weird because what you suddenly realise is that until CG, you know, made Lord of the Rings possible. It was very hard to do that epic fantasy scale. So, yeah, and then so you'd make a fantasy and it would be five people in a forest with a unicorn. 
and a cage full of dwarves. <laughs> <laughs> so yes, it, and, and so but I mean, and, and then you know, really, you know, you could say it's a spur to creativity because a lot of the fantasy and science fiction that was around. Uh, yeah. I mean, another film, Explorers, the Joe Dante movie, was out this year, which yeah. uh, it, you know had. Again, you know, that's that's a, a Spielberg esque film, isn't it? Yes. I mean, it's definitely definitely tapping into that vein. Yeah, and, and it's you know a few kids messing around with a a, a weird alien device, and yeah. it's not got that big scale. But you know, and I think what what really collapsed in Legend is that Ridley Scott was trying to be epic, but he he had a lot of money, but he had to spend it all on sets and. Yeah. Tim Curry's horns and, <laughs> and stuff like that. Well, they are <laughs> what, have got, what have we got left in the budget for people? Nothing. Oh, okay. <laughs> it's all gone on horns. <laughs> all gone on horns. Of course, Tim Curry was in Clue, same year. Far oh, more Clue, is a, Clue is, a, is a fantastic film as well. It's all my favourite uh, films. Yeah. I've seen it so many times, though, because I'm a bit of a Cluedo fan myself. So yeah. I've, I've seen it There's uh, when I'm. It, it was the 80s. I was a kid. I was allowed to be weird back then. These days, it's a problem, but back then, it was cute. If I actually got like my Cluedo board out, and the sets on um, the lower floor match the Cluedo board stunningly well, the sort of layout of the, of the really? building. Yeah, the, the layout of wow. the building is right. All the secret passages lead to where they should go, and you can track the movement yeah. of the characters throughout the house, and it all makes sense. They, they've blocked <laughs> out where all the murders happen precisely. It, it's it's quite like stunning it? to follow by moving the pieces round, around your laid out well, Cluedo board and going, wow. Do we have to have another Cluedo intervention? I know, <laughs> I, know where, well, I'm, I know what I'm doing this afternoon. I haven't got a Cluedo set, but I'm going to get my battleships. <laughs> uh, see how that... Well, accurately. Because, because no, it does follow it, because battleships doesn't have much of a plot anyway, the game, does it really? So... <laughs> Or indeed, you know, it's quiet plastic. Yeah, so, so. fair enough. Um, yes, marvellous legend, and that led us into many places uh, yeah. at the same time. Yeah, I would, I would actually quite like to see Legend again, but it's kind of disappeared. People, you know, you can't get hold of a copy of Legend. Uh, you know, you'd have to go out and seek one out. One won't just drop in your lap. Uh, and I'm not sure I'm quite that keen. Uh, so there we go. Uh, but yes, uh, my second uh, pick, uh, I guess, uh, is going to uh, comment upon the uh, sort of vein of fantasy and also hark back to our Back to the Future discussion and things like this. I've picked Weird Science. Ah, oh, that's a classic. Yeah, which is ex an exemplar of the type of teen comedy yeah. that Back to the Future was being turned down to put into production. Although, to be fair... It's Weird better, science though. is a lot better than a lot of the, the, the same sort of things. So you know, yeah, I mean, so you're absolutely right, and that, that uh, with that comes you know a quality of writing and direction that is sadly missing in a lot of the type of things you're talking about. Well, yeah, I mean, John Hughes. I mean, yeah, you can't. I can't think of a a, a filmmaker currently who has the John Hughes thing, which no. is John Hughes made. The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Pretty in Pink, and Weird Science. Oh, and also Uncle Buck. And while we're at it, why not throw in Home Alone? Which is like all all different types of movie. I mean, yeah, that isn't that doesn't complete his filmography, 
But if you look at those, all those different movies, they're slightly different types of movie. Yeah, like yeah. Good Science is a wacky teen comedy. Uh, Breakfast Club is more of a sort of commentary on something. Home Alone is just Macaulay Culkin running around the house beating up burglars. You know, it, they, it's a guy who's making, and, and, and of course, um, Uncle Buck is a John Candy vehicle, and he also made their planes, trains, and automobiles. So he had these, all these different strings to his bow. Yeah. He didn't just do one sort of comedy the same way that, um, Oh, guy who works with Seth Rogen a lot. Uh, and also Paul Rudd, who's big at the moment. Can't remember his name. It's gone completely blank. But it, there's a stable of films mostly starring Seth Rogen yeah. uh, and Paul Rudd uh, at the moment. Um, the, Judd Apatow. There we go. Yeah. He makes Judd Apatow movies. I like some of them uh, more than others. I, I will watch any of them. But you cannot say, oh, he's... He's cut this great, you know, difference. I mean, Pineapple Express is the standout Judd Apatow movie being yeah. fairly much different to all the rest. But all the rest, you know, Knocked Up, 40-Year-Old Virgin, so on and so forth. They're all yeah. the same type of movie, whereas John Hughes managed to do a lot more. And we don't have a, a, a filmmaker like that working in that arena anymore. The thing that, that really lingers in my mind about Weird Science is how the kind of the two nerds uh, are kind of... How can I put this? They're, there's like, they're not particularly shown to have any bad characteristics other than they're a bit down on themselves. You know, their parents don't really understand them or appreciate them. Their older siblings bully them. But, you know, they create this woman and she's like, you two geniuses. She just fixes their lives. She sets them up with girlfriends. She, you know... She really kind of like fights their corner, and they're not, you yeah. know, it's not sad and nerdy. It's kind of glorious to be these quiet little about being these geniuses, and at the same time, and that's, that's rare at that time. It is because you know, it's nerds are chic now. They weren't oh. in the day. Well, uh, exactly. you have to remember this is a couple of years after a film I have not seen, but is available to me to watch at the moment. Revenge of the Nerds, yeah. and I think. I think what the it's, difference is is that but, but, but nerds are, I, I don't think they're, they're they are still socially awkward creatures. Whereas these ones are they're, oh. they're just guys. They're guys with brains. That's all they are. Yeah. Well, I think that well, this is what I was going to say. In weird science, and I think in John Hughes generally, he doesn't view nerds as what you know, like as Revenge of the Nerds views them oh, as, a, as a stereotype that can yeah. be yes. Revealed. I mean, it, you know, Which is as much, what you see a lot of yeah. up to, you know, probably now we have we're obviously quite okay with geek culture, but it's it in the eighties particularly, it was very, very, you know, you had the very gawky, big thick glasses, you know, yeah. the the kind of completely you know, unable to talk to anyone kind yeah. of thing. That lasted a long time. I mean, I mean, yeah, like, don't, don't be so hard on yourselves kind of conversation yeah. with even yeah. even these days you have something like the Big Bang Theory, and as much as that's you know, it can it, it's funny. Although if you do watch season one of the Big Bang Theory, that was very stereotypical. Yeah. And over time they have changed many yeah. of the characters to have more to them than was initially the case when they started the show. Um that again feeds into that. Whereas John yeah. Hughes very much said, No, these are just guys nobody notices. You know, obviously he had an experience of going to high school and being like it's not that we're bullied particularly and it's not that we're singled out or made to feel particularly strange except by virtue of the fact 
nobody notices that we're even there. Yeah. And that is that is what John Hughes nerds are all about. Well, in fact, even the female characters, you know, someone is 16 Candles famously about a girl whose parents forget it's her 16th birthday. You know, these people who who pass through the American school system as nothing. They're not uh, anything. It's clear that he was obviously that type, you know, and that's why there's so, so much empathy, I think, towards those characters rather than just treating them as kind of stock characters. There's an understanding there that you have that gives them, you know, you kind of you like those characters and understand them. Yeah. I mean, a final so, a, a final note for me on Weird Science. I think one of the things that I remember about it, apart from all the great, great things about John Hughes, is that it, it was a massive VHS. You know, yeah. it's big at the cinema, but then on VHS, I, I think, you know, people wore through tapes of that movie. They just yeah. watched it. Over and over and over again, it was one of the hugest home videos ever. Well, teenagers do have uh, some disposable income; they can scrape the coins together to go buy a video from the you know, X rental or whatever. So, or off the, off yeah. the shelf of HMV or whatever. Yeah. So uh, there we go, um, and of course, uh, it has Iron Man in it. So yes. Um, where are we up to? We're up to. Ian? Yes. Yeah, Ian. Uh, well, I want to talk about one of the most bizarrest non-sequels. Well, there's a sequel, but not a sequel to the film everyone thought it was. Uh, a Disney film that la- that's, uh, has no musical numbers in it whatsoever, which is bleak, scary, nightmarish even, um, almost to the point of nihilistic, terrifying dark magic. Uh, all around you, you are alone and parentless in a strange, dark, mysterious world. It is, of course... Full of lunatics. Full Don't of lunatics. Full of, full of lunatics. Yeah. They're genuinely dangerous psychopaths are out there in the wilderness. Yeah. I'm, of course, talking about Return to Oz, which bears no yeah. resemblance whatsoever to the beloved musical of the 1930s whatsoever. It's much more of a direct sequel to the original books, plural, set in the land of Oz. Um... And and yeah, it's 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 like an it's like one of your childhood nightmares made it onto the screen, and you know yeah. perhaps it was a you know it's like a, you can look back at it and go well perhaps it was a misstep to make this film so bleak, so nightmarish you know so so many headless women in it, um, uh, but at the same time I'm so I'm so glad that they did because there's so many things in there which yeah. are memorable. The Clockwork Soldier. I was obsessed with the yeah. Clockwork Soldier. I was ex- obsessed with the puzzle room where you have to touch an object and say Oz, but you have to find the right object, and so yeah, then you figure out the theme of the object that you have to find. The headless witch who was stood on the heads of all the maidens, the spare heads, which she keeps in glass cabinets down this long corridor, and which are all sleeping. They are not still like when I guess they're all living heads on pedestals behind glass cameras and they're all and Dorothy Gale little girl lost going down that corridor night to go into the headless witch's bedroom to steal the key my goodness it's, not that, it's, the, it's, it's the structure of the film you know in, in Wizard of Oz you know it's all quite a transition there it's just the whirlwind and it's all kind of in this you know I mean she goes to, she goes to a sanatorium and they're going to give her electroshock shock, shock therapy exactly they're going to I mean that is pretty bleak <laughs> What's really weird about this is that what's come out over this conversation, that the things that we've centred on 
And, you know, there's more stuff we could talk about here, but we just don't really have the time. But we've picked on some of the weirdest movies that have ever existed, and they all came out in the same year. You know, Brazil, Legend, you know. It's just odd that that, that one year should produce all this stuff. It's the 80s, man. It's the 80s. Well, we're right in the heart of it in this. Yeah, yeah, we're riding on the crest of the wave from Star Wars and Indiana Jones, and it's now people are getting it, and they are making it, you know. And it's not just these figureheads of of Spielberg or whatever. People have kind of tapped into it. And and so, yeah, that's what I love about 80s films, really, certainly this period. Well, it suddenly comes to me that, that, you know, I think in a way it tells you, you know, here we are, 2013, we look back at um, Star Wars and Empire Strikes Back and what have you, and those are movies. And in a way, you know, you can tell culture has digested exactly what all that's about now because you get Iron Man and Thor, the Dark World and all of this stuff coming out now. And that's kind of like, this is more of the stuff. But what this tells me about 1985 is that Hollywood, this time, there was a certain sentiment in which people go, people went to see that Star Wars. Of course they'll go and see the thing about the little girl lost in the world of lunatics with the witch with the no heads. You know, that, that's just, you know, there was a certain sentiment in part of society, this cynical business part of society, that the reason they were getting money together to make Brazil and legend and, and God knows what is because they didn't really at this point understand what had made Star Wars. It's yet. funny you should say Star Wars because I believe you know the film eventually got greenlit because Disney were about to lose the rights to Oz anyway, so unless they made a film. And they did have cold feet during production about how bleak it was. But Lucas came in and spoke up for the filmmaker and said, hey, let the filmmaker have integrity over what he's doing. So there is a Star Wars connection to all this because of Lucas, man who made Star Wars, says it. Well, Frank Oz, of course, yeah. um, who directed it. So, yeah, just crazy. But I mean, yeah, the idea is that it, it's it's just interesting. Not just that, but all the other strange things are getting greenlit because it shows that the business part of Hollywood at this stage had no grasp on what was making science fiction and fantasy work the 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 downside to the fact that they eventually started to get it uh, to, you know 30 years or whatever is that now we get things that are very parceled and very directed and focused you know our sci-fi and fantasy is is very organized and you know the you know the advantage to this time on the other hand is that you could get this crazy stuff coming out of the cinema and it was just you know we don't make stuff like this anymore at all. It's all far more organised these days. Absolutely. Hmm. And uh, maybe using that as a segue into my third film yes. demonstrates that exactly, which is Young Sherlock Holmes. Yes. Because that's got some crazy stuff in it. Now, considering, you know, you could, we're, we're familiar, obviously there's been uh, uh, recent kind of Sherlock Holmes films and we, we've, we're now seeing a lot more of that. Um, and actually, you know, Sherlock Holmes on its own is an interesting property. And young Sherlock Holmes is an interesting property. But that, they weren't content with that. There's some seriously weird, odd things going on in this film, visually, that are quite memorable. I mean, they do, that's why I kind of picked it, really, because they really, I'm never going to forget, you know, those kind of murderous kind of chocolate and desserts, you know. Um, well, everyone remembers like, the stained glass window coming to life. And stained glass, which was, you know, actually kind of, you know, real cutting edge, uh, science, uh, state of the art effects at the time. Um, 
and uh, and that was pretty memorable. Yeah, all these all these kind of hallucinations. Um, what took you know? It's kind of a fantasy film, really. Even though they can be explained as hallucinations, well, they're so real in it that it, it might also, as well. Be. And also the, yeah. the pyramid under London at the end, run by a cult. Yeah. I mean, you know, going into kind of, kind of, it's got that feel of the kind of, it's, which is kind of right for Victorian. But that now you're introducing the kind of horror. There's touches of um, uh, Temple of Doom in that, um, and so it's actually got some rather unsettling for what what could be just a light children's room, it's actually got some unsettling, kind of rather dark, you know, elements to it. Well, I, w- um, I would point out when the first Shane Ritchie Sherlock Holmes came out, that had a supernatural element to it. I mean, it wasn't supernatural. It was collapsed into reality by Sherlock Holmes explaining it all at the end. But there, there was uh, a... Guy Ritchie, not Shane oh, Ritchie. Oh, sorry, yeah. Guy Ritchie, not Shane Ritchie, yeah. Shane Ritchie, yeah. Meanwhile, in Ian's parallel universe, life is more interesting. Uh, yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, well, I think that that is indicative. Maybe, well, it's kind of hinted at in Sherlock Holmes, but you know that kind of Victorian horror we're kind of used to seeing. That does supernatural, and you know, it is the time of kind of va- uh, vampires and in other literature. So, so I guess it's natural to, for that for that crossover to happen. Uh, but, but, but the young Sherlock Holmes kind of took that, and it, and I say it's kind of more fantasy than anything else, really. When it go and kind of and, and horror, it's kind of a mishmash of stuff. But, um, and, they, and they delve yeah. into Sherlock's. They do temporarily dive into Sherlock's psyche, when you because yeah. he, has, he hallucinates himself, and you realise that he's, he's exposed an affair his father's had, and so this is why yeah. he's ostracised from his family. Um, yes, which you don't often get that kind of. It's all kind of more implied in other iterations of Sherlock. They don't go out and explain why he's so messed up, other than you know he's a drug user because. Uh, people always seem to zero in on that it's, when reading the old stories. It does tap into a bit of the kind of cliches with the characters, though, because Watson is quite bumbling, and it's it's more the kind of... I guess it's for the audience, who are largely American, you know, their experience up to this point of Sherlock Holmes is the kind of Basil Rathbone years, mm. of which you know, we have we have Watson as this kind of buffoon. Um, and of course, he's not. He's anything but that. He's not a buffoon, but, but in, in the in the short stories, he's he is the perfect straight man to Holmes. He's always that's yeah, incredible. No, he's Holmes. a straight man. Yeah, he's a straight man. Um, but you know, so there are elements with the Watson character in in Young Sherlock Holmes of which you know that he's he's kind of like that. But then you know he could grow up and, and not be that. But so there are touches of that. Um, but yeah, I, I you know I think it's a and again this is a very much you know. Spielbergian film or attempting to it's, it's tapping into that exactly what we're talking about that kind of wave minute. I mean, I think that at the time, I, I remember going to see Young Sherlock Holmes at the time. It was a you know Christmas release, <clears throat> and I I remember people thinking or there, there being a, a feeling after the fact that, and it certainly didn't get a sequel, which no. they kind of set up for. Yes. So I think that it was a disappointment to those yeah. that had commissioned the work. Um, and I think one of the reasons, possibly, that it didn't quite have the, the legs that it, it wanted, particularly as it must have come out at the latter end of 1985, um, was that this year must have fatigued people because so many movies came out. And by yeah. Christmas, it was like, I've, uh, you know, because I think these, year, these days we're used to the schedule. You know, you have... Christmas, New Year, so they kind of mung together. Then you have Oscar season. Then you have the summer, 
Then you yeah. have that tail endy bit at the end of the summer where they put in a few blockbusters they didn't have time for elsewhere and hope they make some money. Then we're entering that. There's a little dip around Halloween, and then you go into the Christmas and back again, and it's a schedule every year, and people kind of expect. And all of the film studios coordinate to try and make the maximum amount of money without treading on each other's toes. Everybody's like a cartel. You know, that's yeah. what happens. Whereas back then, you know, the idea, I mean, if you look back over the shows that we've done, the amount of movies that are coming out in 1985 are just, you know, people are going to the cinema thinking, oh, I'll go and see this. This will be my film for the next three months i'll be fine and then another one comes out and another one and another one and all this interesting stuff and i think honestly all that happened to young sherlock holmes was by that time people were like i want to go and see it but i haven't got any more money to go to the cinema with uh, so i'm gonna stay at home and and that's all that happened really. yeah, say, and it could have it could have had also had the trick you know if it had had that not happened we could have seen a kind of a tv series in the vein of connie yeah. young yeah yeah but you know We'll have to resort to keeping the film. That's it. And uh, my my final choice, which I think is has been a good choice to end off, because we had we've ignored one complete segment of uh, the cinema audience in 1985 thus far, and this is yeah. going to bring everything into the fold. I'm looking at uh, Return of the Living Dead. Yeah. Uh, which kind of there's a lot of zombie stuff going on, uh, well, zombie and horror stuff going on in 1985. And so far, we haven't really discussed it at all. You've got Day of the Dead, Reanimator, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street yeah. Part 2, all of these things coming Roger in. Moore, yes. Roger Moore, yes. Um, and it just, yes, the reason I picked Return of the Living Dead specifically out of all the, the horror properties of that year is because at the same time as being a sort of cheeky nod and wink to the past, it was also another redefinition you know thus far in the zombie category you had Romero and then yeah. you had the evil dead and what Return of the Living Dead did was it said well we're going on from Romero but we're going to put in punk music and we're going to yeah. incorporate elements of teen comedy and we're going to incorporate and of course you know Return of the Living Dead is the home of brains yeah. so it's become the most iconic it's actually thing. surprised me because I only saw this I didn't see it at the time and I only saw this maybe four or five years ago and I was like oh wow that's the first that is that you know the, the kind of comedy zombie like version of you see you know you kind of see yeah the brains thing I just not really being uh, knowing a lot about those kind of things um, I was quite surprised actually that was like that's where it came from and then, of course, because it, it's nothing like the Romero kind of zombie, when you look at it, it's much kind of more kind of, you know, owes itself more to Hammer House horror than it does. Well, it's strange. Uh, kind of gritty whole, realism. Yeah, it's strange that the whole brains thing is, you know, I, I would say these days you say zombies to people and they go brains, you know, that's yeah. what it is. And yeah. yet by this time we've already had Night of the Living Dead, Dawn of the Dead, yeah. Day of the Dead, The Evil Dead. And several more, like there's been, and in the 70s there were a lot of Italian zombie movies. We've got to 1985 with all yeah. of these zombie movie canon, and suddenly one of them goes, brains, and that's it. <laughs> Everybody from that yeah, moment well, on, that's what it's all about. Never underestimate the power of a good catchphrase, I think. Because it makes yeah. no sense. If a zombie wants brains, that person won't become a zombie because the brain's been destroyed. So, tactically, it, it, it makes no <laughs> sense. That's what the zombies would desire. It should be like flesh or something. 
Oh, that, that, well, has, uh, have you not seen the Return of the Living Dead movies? Uh, yeah. I, possibly I have. They have not linked in memory if I did. They have. Well, you you probably possibly you would remember them. They're quite quiet. Um, you know. There is a whole yeah. pseudo scientific explanation. I mean, it, it is self consciously ridiculous as yeah. to why it is that zombies eat brains. But yeah, I mean, it's just like a. They did it in the first one because I think. I mean, the, the whole idea of, of, of Return of the Living Dead is to have some of the set piece moments. Like they've got the idea is that the zombies from Night of the Living Dead were all stuffed into like tin cans, essentially, where they continue, you know, their their zombie like awareness continues to exist in this twilight world. And when you break it open, the thing that comes out is like these are the set piece zombies of the movie on the one hand they're absolutely hideous looking very scary but the minute you hit them with anything like a stick they just dissolve hmm. unfortunately the problem with that is that they dissolve into the water supply and the cycle continues um i mean you know if zombies really were like the zombies in return of the living dead um you know the world would die every time weirdly in every sequel somehow they managed to contain it <laughs> even though it seems highly unlikely that they would so yeah um but it, it's, 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 a, it's a great franchise and i think it, it sums up i'll talk briefly about reanimate because I've, I've got a soft spot for reanimate and that is kind of like uh it's it's got the same kind of tongue-in-cheek craziness you know but it's obviously yes. a kind of a darker affair but but it's got that spirit, you know, it's it's kind of um, it's, you know, it's basically filmmakers reveling in the kind of physical effects they can do with delight as kind of crazy stuff. Um, and returns are really even crazier. Um, but yeah, so it's it's got that spirit, which I, you know, it's so over the top because I'm not a huge horror fan that I can watch all that quite easily because it's just, you know, very silly. I think the idea of um because it, you know, your Romero zombie is just not very chatty and uh, just sort of shambles around and eats carrion. You know, that's what it does. That's your classic zombie. Um, Evil Dead kind of sidesteps the issue because they're evil demons reanimating the flesh of the dead. Yeah. But I think there's this whole strand of horror that we've completely lost, which is this idea of reanimating dead flesh and it being a really bad idea to yeah, have yeah. done that. And the dead people telling you that. There's a scene in uh, one of the Return of the Living Dead ones, possibly the first one, possibly the second. I think it is the first one where they have this corpse of a woman that's been dead for like 80 years. It's basically a puppet of a skeletal woman. They tie it to a, a to a yes, it is the first one. They tie it to a bench and they ask her what's going on, and and and. You know, they have a whole conversation with this reanimated skeletal flesh bag. And, you know, it's that kind of thing in horror movies that we just don't get anymore. Because the the scene is horrendous, tragic, kind of funny, all at Mm. the same time. And, you know, we we, we don't get that now uh, at all. I can't think of a a horror movie that really manages to, to push that envelope of having this... This tragic, you know, the zombie as a tragic figure is very much cemented by Return of the Living Dead um, and that kind of idea. And we totally don't do that anymore. So um, there we go. Um, but yes, I mean, to, to round this up, 
We have, I think we've covered the spirit of 1985 admirably with our montage approach. But there's still so much on the list. You know, yeah. we could we could go on. Um, I mean, I keep saying, and I totally believe this, that when we get to the 90s, we're going to have to come back to the 80s for relief <laughs> because the... The 90s were only ever good by accident, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, there are, there, are good, there are good films in the 90s, but when you... I mean, you know, if you put together 1984, 1985 and 1986 and got all the good films off that list, you would probably have about the same number of films as all the good films that came out in the 90s. So, you know, that's going to wow. be a... I think so. There's always going to be time to look back to the 80s again, pick yeah. out the themes and the directors. I mean, we haven't even discussed uh, Flesh and Blood, the first. Uh, no, you know, I've only seen recently due to uh, uh, Leo's kind of uh, talking about it. Uh, and uh, yeah, I thought it was great fun. We, we'll have to return to that another day. But yeah. for now, I think it is time for. Well, uh, I think I think you know if the, if there has been a film. That from the 85 that we missed, people would like us to go back and talk about. A good place to point this out to us would be our Facebook page. It would indeed. Uh, you can go there, you can find us on Facebook slash Revenge of the 80s Kids. That's 80s as in numbers, so 80s. It is our community hub. Please go there and like our page and join the community. Our podcasts are put up there. We also put links to interesting things and have occasionally discussions. Uh, so, yes, please go to our Facebook page, but of course, podcasts are what it's all about. You can find those on the Podomatic site, so point your browser to 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in letters, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomatic.com. Please go there and subscribe to us using your podcast aggregator of your choice, or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own. Uh, but this is not the only place we can be found on the internet. Indeed, many of our old shows can be found on Leo's uh, own personal website, which would be... Uh, LeoStableford.com, uh, which, uh, yes, that houses a, an easy access point to uh, download old, very old, you know, from the very beginning 80s kids episodes. Um, and as we've, we've put in a few corkers recently, the uh, list actually available through the Podomatic feed is quite short, Yes, present. Um, you had some very yeah, fat children. All of the shows are available. Yes, you can. Um, well, the thing is, we, we've done this because you know, if you think we're being overindulgent, or you're thinking, you know, we we have, as you say, we, you know, we haven't really been burned significantly by this experience yet. Um, so you know, maybe maybe if we felt accountable to someone, we would be more disciplined, <laughs> but we're not. So that's correct. Um, yes, so that's that's all there. I'm also doing. Uh, not currently, for it's National Novel Writing Month, and I am nationally writing a novel. But uh, all the while, my fairy tale project for this year, uh, BridgetownTales.com, can be found at BridgetownTales.blogspot.com, um, and that is is even now rattling towards its conclusion. What with it only having about six or seven episodes left before the very end, so uh, and all of the previous. Uh, uh, Episodes are available there to read and digest and enjoy. Uh, more Bridgetown Tales coming next year, including possibly more illustrations, although there are a few, and those have been done by... That's by me, uh, and you can find examples of those uh, on my own kind of deviant art page under the name Justin Wyatt, W-Y-A-L-T. 
Um, but yes, yeah, so that, that's 1985. And for those of you uh, interested in such thing, after a brief break for the end credits music, we shall be reconvening to discuss mm. uh, exciting developments in the world of Doctor yes, Who. But yes, yes, 1985 is very interesting. Can you please talk about Doctor Who again? <laughs> I think we might have to do something about that. <laughs> it's too late. I've torn up the affidavit. <laughs> Roll the music. Roll the music. <laughs> <laughs> Then, so, yes. Wow. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so, I mean, I've talked enough. I think you guys should opine. Uh, I'm kind of blown away by that six minutes and a bit of, of telly. Um, I think that's actually one of the most exciting things I've seen for Doctor Who for some time. Well, uh, which is, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, uh, which is not to sort of uh, denigrate the rest of it, but I, I, I myself, while I was watching it, thinking, wow, if they could keep this pitch up all the time, you know... I mean, not, uh, the nation isn't glued to their television sets on a Saturday anyway, but wow. Yeah, you did talk um, about Doctor Who being event television, and my God, <laughs> that, that wasn't even technically television. That was a red button uh, special that you could view of, on YouTube. It's kind of, yeah, absolutely. And it's really loaded with stuff in there. I mean, there's lots of things in there. I mean, one, of course, you know, I mean, giving, talk about giving stuff to the fans, what we've, you know, we've all been kind of clambering for ages, actually, you know, Paul McGann, some more airtime. Um, which is fantastic, um, and obviously kind of links things through. Um, then, you know, um, for those who, who, who claim that, you know, there will never be a female doctor, you know, well, they've just invented the people that can actually make that happen in case there was some reason why that shouldn't be the case anyway. I took uh, away, I took away from that the implication that it could happen by chance, but that yeah. they could make it happen and therefore, you know, I mean, you know, that was it. Oh, well, that's true, over. yes, because they were offering the choice as if that would happen anyway. That's true. Um, and then they've got the full gambit of kind of being able to choose via that method. So, so yeah, I think that actually kind of should cement the way forward for a potential female doctor if such thing is appropriate in the future, which is all awesome as well. And then, of course, then you've got the kind of John Hurt kind of thing as well, which is kind of fantastic considering he's so young when he regenerates he's a he's a he's going to be that character for a long time which yes. is really you talk about the duration that's of the pretty war. juicy uh, yeah. well uh, as someone pointed out uh, you know in the uh, inevitable uh, flurry of fan activity that followed the uh, release of the webisode river song made a um, made a reference when she first regenerated into Alex Kingston, that she yeah. might age up or down a bit. Yeah, right. So, as if doctors can kind of control, well, as if Time Lords can kind of control that sort of thing. Well, I think that was a, a joke about the fact that, you know, the, the, the last River Song episode is ironically the one where she's the youngest because of the order they were filmed in. Um, so, I think, but, you know, I think, I think the implication is he just has been around for a heck of a long time. I've been fighting this war for a heck of a long time. Uh, so, uh, you know what, it's, it's kind of, the thing about um, John Hurt being this mystery doctor was he was kind of inserted after 
the eighth, we assumed. It's now being confirmed. And, and it kind of made the effect a bit of a ghost at the feast. But it's been cleared away now. I feel I can just enjoy John Hurt for the John Hurt goodness that we're going to be getting on the 50th, uh, which is good. And, of course, now, of course, we're all pining to see Hurt to Eccleston. And Eccleston has famously said he's not in the 50th. So are we going to see John Hurt regenerate into high-definition, digitally altered photograph of, of Christopher Eccleston? Uh, well, I, I kind of think I kind of think that because what we see repeated a lot of times over and over is is this thing about the doctor lies, and so you know, and we and then you know, although technically speaking, because Paul McGann said I'm not in the special, which he obviously nice. now won't be, no. but that wasn't the whole truth, and no. so therefore, you know. <laughs> But all the same, uh, it's it's had uh, nearly 1.7 million views on YouTube, plus all the uh, I play on BBC I player views. Uh, it began praised again for his performance, like he was in 1996. I think I think the 17 years of maturity has really added uh, to his Doctor. I have to say, um, yeah, and I think I think he has kind of stolen the show before the before the anniversary even came up. Yeah, I think so. I think he was actually, you know, from that just brief time, you know, he's on, he really kind of does everything he needs to do for that character and, and you know, makes you kind of want, you know, yearn even more for the, for the missing years. There's a, there's visually, well, anyway. There's a lot of, there's a lot of call for more McGann Doctor, so who knows how well, that can you know, wild crazy spe- world. Wild speculation time. Uh, BBC iPlayer now does have its own controller, like it's a channel. So if, if if people are interested in, in the missing adventures of Paul McGann on iPlayer or some other digital-only format, that would be interesting. It just question is, is it, is it going to be too much of a competitor for the, for the real series, which has a brand-new Doctor starting next year, who presumably they don't want to crowd out as he finds his way in the role? Well, I think that, uh, I think that honestly, the kind of people who would seek it out digitally uh, would be the kind of people who would watch both. Yes, it would be like, absolutely, there's absolutely. no competition. Yeah, it's right. just different parts of the story. So it's a, I mean, it, it's, a, it's not competing with those people who are casual, who viewers, who only watch on television. I mean, the other thing is that, um, that, uh, of course, BBC, uh, America, um, produced a series called Copper, which, um, we haven't seen on the BBC. Presumably right. they're going to broadcast at some point, but at the moment, Love Film have an exclusive distribution deal. Uh, for people to watch that, and that's rather strange to have a, a something that has the BBC's name on it that British people have not seen, but American yeah. people have seen on television, I, I but now think, only love film people. I don't think BBC. So. I don't think BBC wholly own BBC America. That could be reason, part of the reason. No, no. Well, that's no, but that's fine. But it, 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 I've not heard of anything like that before, so it's hmm. a bit odd. Um, so yes, yeah, so there we go. I mean, that's. I think that uh, it, it's. A very strange thing that 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 little thing being dropped, you know, like a pebble being dropped into the water. After our discussion about, um, at some point we were talking about um, people going to see the live broadcast in yes. cinemas. Yes, since originally on the Cineworld site, um, those places that were doing that were obviously showing it synchronously with with the broadcast. Yeah. And yeah, apparently so many people want to see it uh, in 3D that they've added 
another broadcast later in the yeah. evening, and now they're selling tickets for the Some next business. day. And it's That's like right. they, they, you know, the, the demand to go and see that on the big screen um, and, is, is and overwhelming. It's in 3D as well. It's in 3D as well. Not everyone has 3D TV, so you know that's also a good opportunity to. No, I, d- I don't want to see it in 3D. If they'd also wanged in some 2D performances, I might be tempted. But as it's only with yeah. glasses on your face, no. But it is interesting to see that that I think they, the BBC, Sydney World, anyone who was involved in that was intending, oh, we'll just do a simulcast. It'll be a bit of, you know, publicity. Some fans will get there what they want. And then people are beating down the doors to get in, so they have to add in extra performances um, across the nation. So that is um, crazy. Yeah, Doctor Who fever is going off here. It's like the Olympics all over again, but with more (laughs) Time Lords. Um, Haven't even got to the making of docudrama starring David Bradley yet. So, my goodness. No, and, and already I've noticed that the TV channels, uh, the BBC-owned TV channels on my box are filling up with, with Doctor Who nostalgia shows, so yeah. this week's going to be a bit of a Doctor Who fest, I, I feel, um, cool. and, and all, all the better for it. So yeah. uh, we have done our, our small part to contribute to the vast glut of <laughs> Doctor Who yes. Thank you for validating my addiction, by the way, so I will... <laughs> I remain oh, unchanged, the broken human being I have always been. We've uh, <laughs> yes, we've uh, torn that affidavit up now, haven't we? Oh well, better luck next time, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> yeah, man, but the crack is so good, and I can quit any time. I just don't want to. <laughs> and we're on that bombshell, I think yes. it's time for us to say good night. Bye, yes. bye. Farewell. Goodbye. <laughs>